This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, I'm Emily Roger, host of the Boiling Point podcast. My co-host, Dave Vale, and I will bring you thoughtful discussions with leaders who are positively impacting our world. This is The Boiling Point, where leadership and inspiration meet. Dave, you're looking extra handsome today. I was going to predict how you would start. Yes, I'm dressed. I'm sort of dressed up. I mean, it is short sleeve, but it's uh, it's very summery. We have a summery day. And then I was going through, what do I wear? Because Emily always, you know, looks so professional. And I saw this shirt and I thought, you know what? I haven't worn that in like a year. So I'm going to put it on. Love it. Yeah. So, and I, and I had my head shaved. So I'm going to put my hat on. So, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. So thank you for noticing your room. Well, it's uh, you generally I comment on the background. It hasn't, it, I don't think has evolved since the last time, but it certainly is coming together. How's the new place? The new place is good. Although, as you know, I love being by the water. I love fishing. I do not love water in my basement. And that happened over the weekend. <laughs> so dealing with a uh, little, uh, some, some renos coming up now, we've had so much rain and um, yeah. So contractors in and out dealing with that, but say levy. I'm learning about renos. I'm learning about foundations. I'm learning about all of these different kinds of things. So. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm so sorry. That's yeah. Water. Actually, it's funny. We have a very similar thing where I drive into the garage and there's this water sitting there. I'm like, how, where's this water coming from? And the uh, washing machine was overflowing and water was, every, you know, it's just like, oh my gosh. So it could be worse. These are the things we deal with and it causes a level of stress for sure. So I'm sorry to hear that. So where, and I always ask you when we start these, so what's the latest trip you've been on? Where, where have you been? Cause you, you know, go all these amazing places around the world. Yeah. Gosh, I think the last place that I was, was a, uh, a fishing trip up in Northern New Brunswick, but this morning was booking upcoming trips. I'm like still kind of buzzing with excitement for all of these things that are opening up. So was, uh, yeah, I have a lot of big trips coming up. I'm going to be away next weekend. I actually have a client who is racing a triathlon doing an Ironman. And, um, so I have been helping her train for that along with, uh, doing executive coaching. And so I'm going to join her for that. And then I go to the Boston area to do some fishing. And then my next big trip is I'm heading to the Bolivian jungle um, in August to fish for golden Dorado, which I have not fished at Bolivia. I haven't even been to Bolivia before. Um, and it's been a bucket list trip for a while. So it just came about and yeah, it still feels surreal. <laughs> oh my gosh. When's that happening? Uh, the end of August and through till September. So I'll be gone about two weeks. So, oh my God. Like, so right away. Good for you. Ah, and you, where have you been? What's, what's Toronto <laughs> for a funeral, unfortunately. Oh. Uh, but it's, it's, you know, funerals are, are both sad and sometimes expected. And in this case, uh, my uncle, uh, Roger, great guy, uh, was just hugely supportive of me and throughout my life and my, my father's eldest brother. 
And then, uh, and then I got to see people I hadn't seen since before the the pandemic. So it was a really nice, you know, t- chance to see the Vales because they're all in in Ontario. And it was, as you know, there's a few years very challenging to get there. And and then just having busy life and busy business and family and all those sorts of things, you, you know, these things fall off. And so it's so nice to be reconnected. So yeah, that was the latest trip. And and I'm really wanting to enjoy the summer. So hopefully we get some summer weather for people that aren't in Atlantic Canada. You've been experiencing heat here in St. John, New Brunswick. We've been experiencing, uh, and it sounds like Fredericton as well, because that's where you're, Emily. We have had so much water. It's been crazy. But uh, anyways, we'll, we'll get through that. So let's bring on our guest. We got an exciting guest today. There she comes on the, there's Dana, that uh, has a living wall beside her, Dana. That is very cool. It's Dr. Dana Lee Bagley. And uh, I had the good fortune of, I've talked to Dana a few times. And Emily, every time I talk to Dana, I walk away just like, oh man, like I never thought about that that way. And I'm going to get her to, to, you know, we'll get into to the, the topics. Uh, but our last conversation, I was like, would you come on our podcast? And uh, she said, sure. Well, absolutely. Bring it on. So um, Dana, as we said, oh, Dana, meet Emily, Emily, meet Dana. As we said to you in our little preamble prior to getting recording here, we love our guests to introduce themselves. So would you do us the privilege of just introducing yourself so I won't mangle it? Yeah, for sure. So um, I'm Dr. Dana Lee Bagley. I'm a registered psychologist in Nova Scotia, Ontario, BC, and Alberta. Um, I spent about 15 years on the medical, surgical, and cancer care units at the hospital. Um, And since then, I was there for wave one and wave two of the pandemic. um, And I left and I now do uh, consulting work on workplaces um, and helping workplaces be healthier. So I spent a lot of time sort of uh, helping the individual, um, you know, develop skills. And then I would send them back to toxic workplaces. And so I was sort of like, can I work on the toxic workplaces for a while? So um, I do research at Dalhousie University and family medicine on behavior change. And then I have an adjunct appointment at St. Mary's University uh, in the Department of Psychology with the industrial organizational area. So that's workplace psychology. And you sleep when? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I mean, oh my gosh. Sorry, Emily, go ahead. No, it's like, this is the thing. Like, I feel like every guest we have on, they like give their intro and it's like, what? (laughs) How do you do all of these things? Like we feel, I feel lazy all of a sudden. (laughs) Wow. So Dean, you live in Halifax? Yep. So I'm in Halifax. I'm born and raised in Calgary, but I've been in Halifax since 2007. Nice. Well, thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to be here with us and lots of uh, really intriguing things to dive into regarding what it is that you do. Because I, I just love to learn a little more about prior to you getting out, like, you know, going on your own and uh, and this entrepreneurial endeavor I'm going to call. You mentioned that background and being in, in cancer care units and then the, I don't know how many waves of COVID where I got I lost track, but the first two waves, what were the big learnings from that? It must've been very tough on some level, you know, what you would have been exposed to and have seen from a perspective, uh, you know, from your perspective as a psychologist, I just love to hear like what, you know, kind of what you pulled from that and, and maybe what, you know, on top of that, what led you to say, you know what, I'm guessing I may, I may have enough of this and I'm ready to emerge in a different way. 
So I've really been kind of a health psychologist uh, for most of my career, which means I've worked with people with chronic disease or life-threatening disease. So um, I worked on the multi-organ transplant unit doing assessments for uh, patients undergoing liver transplant and kidney donation. Um, And then I also worked uh, in the physical rehab building uh, for people who had brain injuries and other musculoskeletal um, diseases. Uh, And then I worked in the cancer center as well. Uh, So, I mean, I've spent most of my career working on medical units, uh, inpatient and outpatient. And so um, having a real uh, experience of being a healthcare worker, and that was really a big part of like my identity. Wave one and wave two, you know, wave one, we got redeployed to give therapy for frontline workers and for medical first responders of the shooting in Nova Scotia. Uh, And then in wave two, I was working with cancer patients. So you know, we, I certainly had that experience of being a frontline worker uh, during wave one and wave two and the stress that went with that. You know, the reasons I left were partly due to my own burnout reasons. There were some challenges in the hospital. Uh, I think with a lot of systems, they got, you know, the, the weaknesses got exposed during the pandemic. And so uh, there were a lot of difficulties uh, in working there. Um, But I also just felt like the mental health needs of the world had gone up as well. And the things that I was doing, it wasn't really where I should be anymore. So clearly doing therapy for people undergoing cancer treatment is a very meaningful uh, thing to do. Um, But there was like so many people that needed help um, from a mental health perspective during the pandemic. And I just felt like there were other things that I could do. And so, you know, the values of our company are really about... um, helping to reduce human suffering and how to increase access to science-based information. So we spend a lot of time trying to make the options more, like, you know, more scalable, uh, more accessible to people. Um, one-on-one therapy totally works, but there will never be enough therapists to offer it to everybody. And so there's a lot of psychological skills that people can learn that will help them in their everyday life. And so that's what we've kind of focused on. Uh, and then again, the idea of like, how can we fix environments so that we're not constantly relying on the individual's sort of willpower to make change, that we change the environment so it's easier for people to make change. And how can we do that? So how can we leverage the workplace as a resource for health? So is most of the work that you're doing with healthcare organizations on a larger scale? No, we do with all kinds of organizations. So we certainly do work with um, healthcare organizations, but really private companies, government, all kinds of organizations now. And again, kind of trying to transmit some of the psychological principles of how humans work and, and how we can function better and how we can you know, cope better uh, in all of those kinds of settings. So, you know, you, you move out of... Um... I guess it would be more like a clinical setting and then you're now working with businesses and any surprises? Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, in the healthcare setting, everything has to be like evidence-based, like everything you do, you can't just like come into work one day and be like, Hey, I get this great idea. Let's do this. Right. Uh, it really doesn't fly. Uh, and then, so moving into the corporate space, I was shocked at how little research has infiltrated the corporate space. So there's clearly some that is there, but there's a ton of research on on like healthy workplaces and leadership training and all these kinds of things that have been demonstrated that work. Uh, and there's a lot of things that happen, you know, in training in the corporate world that really has like no background to it, has no evidence for it. There's a lot of like, you know, personality tests that people take as part of like corporate training that have zero science behind them. Like they're no better than a Cosmo quiz because we don't know anything about them. And they're really just something 
somebody kind of made up, right? It might be a fantastic idea, but we just don't actually know. It's just one person's idea about what to do. And so that's been the biggest kind of, uh, you know, shock for me is um, how uh, little science has infiltrated there. And so we spend a lot of effort, like trying to make use of existing research, translating that into like everyday things people can do, translating that into assessment tools people can use and and, you know, skill building and training that people can use uh, to try to make that more effective um, so that, that people can function better. What would be some of the main issues that organizations are coming to you with? During the pandemic, it was a lot of how to cope with the pandemic, right? And skills that we could do to cope with the pandemic. Since the crisis of the pandemic has ended, I think it's a really big problem that we act like everything's fine. It's like totally not fine. We are not fine. And everything is not back to normal. Uh, But, you know, the world is a lot more unpredictable now than it was pre-pandemic. And that impacts our um, you know, experience of the world. So our survival brain, I like to call it, uh, the threat system will activate. You don't have to be consciously aware of that activating, but it, you know, uh, triggers hormones and neurochemicals and, and transmitters that um, impact our experience of the world. And so we are all a lot more stressed. The like stress of the pandemic has lessened, but the world is a lot more stressful now. It's a lot more unpredictable. And so we haven't, I don't think, appropriately adjusted for that, that there is like a we are in a different, this new normal kind of sucks. (laughs) There's a lot of parts to it that are not great. Uh, And we haven't really adjusted expectations about that. And so the thing that we hear most often now from um, organizations we're working out is just the enormous level of fatigue. And whether you call that burnout or cognitive fatigue, mental fatigue, you know, people are just like, I'm just so tired. And so it makes it difficult to kind of do any other work because everyone is just overwhelmed, too tired, too many things on their plate um, to do a lot of, you know, other kinds of of work with them. I wonder if that's like, you know, this idea of like trying to normalize a time, period of time or a situation. I mean, there must be a psychological element to that. And maybe it's the algorithm that I'm seeing, but like there's these extreme weather events and it's like everyone's trying to normalize it. And it's just like, this doesn't feel normal to me, you guys, but I want it to be normal. Like as a part of me that like, just like I grew up in Northern Canada, there's wildfires all the time, you know, but it's like, yeah, but the the evidence, you know, talking about evidence, like there, this is a scale that we haven't seen before. And and my my brain wants to, no, no, it's, it's, it's actually normal because read this, you know, is that part of it? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a bit of toxic positivity in there, you know, this like sense of like, we sh- we shouldn't think badly, or you should just be optimistic, or don't be so negative about things. But I don't think that actually helps people cope. I think what helps people cope is recognizing that it is hard, recognizing that we do feel uneasy, recognizing that it is stressful. When we can connect about those parts, about what's hard, what's scary, the struggle, then we can actually help people feel better. But we can help people feel better, not because we're solving the problem, but because we are, uh, you know, uh, tapping into how humans are hardwired, that we feel better when we're not alone. So for example, there's some studies that were done where they had people stand at the bottom of a hill and estimate how tall the hill is. And if you're standing there with loved ones, we will estimate the height of the hill as being less than if you're there all by yourself. Then they have ones where they have people carry a backpack and estimate the weight of the backpack. 
then again, if you're there with loved ones, even though they're not allowed to help you, they, we will estimate the weight of the backpack as being less than if you're there all by yourself. Then they have some studies where they have people in a functional MRI machine and they administer a standardized shock to their toes. And so you can see the pain receptors of the brain light up on the fMRI. And if you're holding the hand of a loved one, your pain receptors literally do not light up as much as if you're there by yourself. Now, if you're holding the hand of someone you have a distressed relationship with, it's actually worse than being there all by yourself. So it's not about be with someone no matter what. But when we can activate, you know, a secure, stable relationship, the obstacles don't seem as big, the burdens don't seem as bad, and the pain doesn't seem as heavy. Uh, and that's not because we've changed anything. It's because we've tapped into how humans are hardwired that we naturally feel better when we feel uh, connected to safe, trusting other people. And so these are the kinds of skills that I don't think people have. I don't think our culture teaches people these skills, and they definitely do not teach uh, like leaders these kinds of skills. And they're the kind of skills that we need both in our everyday life and in our workplace to cope because there's so many things that we actually don't have control over anymore. Uh, and, you know, we probably never really did, but we kind of thought we did. <laughs> so, right? just gonna um, ask that. <laughs> yeah, we never really did. But, you know, the shift of perception that I thought I used to have control over it and now I don't. And it's a big problem through, because so many things that we encounter in life are actually not things we can control. And we see this all the time when people uh, run into health problems, right? Is that trying harder to fix your health problem doesn't necessarily fix it. There are parts of how our anatomies work and our bodies work that we do not have direct control over. And so we're balancing both. You should absolutely do things to take care of yourself and those things count and they matter, but you can be doing everything right and your disease can still progress. And that's not because you're not trying hard enough, right? And we do that in very subtle ways. Uh, for example, when we talk about people uh, lost their battle with cancer, it kind of suggests, ah, oh, if you just had fought a little harder, maybe you could have won, right? It's a very subtle language that says, you know, you somehow could have had more control over this thing, right? They died of cancer and people die of cancer even when they get the best treatments, right? Um, often it's actually a chronic disease that people have for five, 10, 15 years after their initial diagnosis. Uh, but it's not because you didn't try hard enough that you end up dying from cancer. And so there are, we as a culture, you know, our dominant Western culture has really not prepared people to live in a world where there is uncertainty, where you don't control things. And that's a lot of the skills that we're trying to teach people, uh, which doesn't change anything, but it helps people cope better because we've tapped into how humans are hardwired. Yeah. And that hardwired for connection and I'll share even just personally myself, I recently moved. So my oldest sister has down syndrome and she also now has Alzheimer's and requires full-time care. So is now living with my mom. She was living on her own before. And about a year ago, I was like, I want to be living like even closer, even though I was living in the same city. And I've always lived, well, not always, but for the last like few years lived alone on my own. And I'm like, how can I get as close to my family without living in the same house? So I actually moved into the house right beside my mom's. So I'm super close and just feeling it's been a few months now and feeling this like, oh my gosh, like I think I was lonely before of even just being able to pop next door. Although before it was a five, 10 minute drive, but I wouldn't have stopped over as much. And, you know, I moved here to be able to think that like I was helping my mom more, helping my sister more. And in return, I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is like just as good for me. But it's interesting you speak about like just that cultural thing of how many people 
say to me when they hear that, that I am now living next door to my mom of, oh my gosh, really? Like you're that close to your mom. And it's like, yeah. And then how many other cultures, it is normal to live with your parents. Yet me just being this close, like just kind of puts up so many red flags for so many people. Yeah. And again, people have this really like faulty notion that like the best, the highest functioning person is someone who's independent. It's actually not like, you know, who was super independent and didn't need anyone's help. The Unabomber, like, you know, serial killers, like at the extreme end, when people are that independent, it's completely dysfunctional, right? So we actually absolutely need um, human connection. And the best like version of a human is somebody who is embedded in a village of support. So, you know, if you have biological relatives that you can have a village with, that's fantastic. Lots of people don't. Lots of people, they're not going to be a good source of support. Um, And so, you know, we spend a lot of time teaching people how to build a village so that you can create a a village in our modern world. Because again, in North America, it's very hard to have a sense of community. Even our big separate houses make it harder to connect with people. We saw that in the pandemic when you're suddenly like in lockdown with your nuclear family. And I was like, this is not adaptive. <laughs> this is not a good thing, right? And so uh, we we actually need to help people recognize that being connected to other people is the highest version of like the best functioning version of a human. It's not somebody who is always functioning on their own independently, right? Of course, we want people to be able to do things on their own, but we also need people to be able to connect and rely on other people. And that becomes a real difficulty for a lot of people. Yeah. I always kind of took it as like a badge of honor as to how independent I was. And then it's like, and what is that? Is that this like self-protection thing or hearing you speak about, you know, how so many people are living in that like kind of hyper arousal state right now from the change and the uncertainty. Is that just kind of like, are you basically like rewiring the brain to come out of that? Because I certainly know the feeling of like, if you get upset or triggered by something and like, you're kind of like, "Eh." and then to to like, just how much like self-control and maybe discipline it then takes to bring your body back down. Otherwise you can just be stuck in that spot. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, the part of our brain that is creates emotions, for example, again, part of our survival brain, it is very well designed for being a cave person when the threats that we encountered were bear attacks. And so if you got attacked by a bear, you should absolutely remember that for the rest of your life. And you should be hyper vigilant about bears. You should repeat the experience of surviving the bear attack. So you remember what to do next time. You should watch out for bears in the woods. You should you know, stay away from places where bears might be. That is our ancestor, the person who did all of those things, right? That same effect still functions in humans. We have not changed how that system works. And so uh, when we are surrounded by threats, uh, but now it can be the threat of losing a job or the threat of divorce or, uh, you know, um, certainly all the threats that showed up because of COVID, like all of those modern threats, our survival brain reacts the same way. And so pretty much everybody has like elevated their baseline kind of anxiety level because of going through the pandemic. Now, if we actually did return to like a lower stress environment that some for many people that stress level might go down somewhat but we haven't there's still a lot of stress right and so uh that like baseline is now higher for most people and again that's how humans are supposed to function you're supposed to remember danger in your environment and adapt to that and be more hyper vigilant about that and the extreme end that is what we call ptsd but it's actually a completely normal reaction to a stressor to a threat to a like um trauma 
uh, but it's a mismatch with our modern world. And that's a lot of the things that cause suffering for humans is we have this like um, survival brain that does things that are not well adapted to our modern world. And that mismatch causes a lot of suffering, but it causes a lot of suffering because we think we should be able to control it or we should be able to um, change it, right? Anything coming out of your survival brain, we do not have direct control over. We can influence it, but we don't have direct control over it. You can't turn off your fight and flight response, right? Um, the part we do have control over is governed by our prefrontal cortex or our frontal lobe. And that is behavior, primarily decision-making, problem solving, those kinds of executive functioning is what it's called. Uh, that's where willpower comes from, self-control, but it's more like a battery. And so it will wear out as we use it up. Uh, and that's why things like binge eating, for example, are more likely to happen in the evenings compared to the mornings because we've used up that battery of self-control, but our survival brain always likes the short-term fix. And we live in an environment where it is very easy to get very, you know, calorie dense, low nutritional like food to eat. Uh, and so that battery is basically like not charging well anymore for anybody because of the ongoing stress, kind of like having a cell phone that won't like fully recharge or like the, it dies really quickly. And that's in part what's contributing to the sense of like burnout and fatigue uh, is that we're just, you know, I'm like, there's no frontal lobes anywhere because everyone is just really worn out. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. You know, one of the things that, um, Dana, I, I really enjoyed about our conversations prior to this, I'm guessing you're picking up on it too, Emily, is just you, you, you talk about this in such a practical way, you know, like it, you, you make, you know, the science and the evidence uh, very accessible. For example, you know, how you describe the prefrontal cortex and, you know, what it controls and it's a battery, you know, like I've never heard someone describe it that way, but that makes a lot of sense. Oh, some of my cravings that kick in when I'm exhausted. I'm just like, ah. you know, like, ah, you know what? It's like, it's been a long day. A glass of wine would be great, you know? And I'm like, 
oh, but how come in the morning that's the last thing I care about, right? But that that actually makes a lot of sense, right? As you describe it. So I appreciate that kind of practical side. And I think that must play out really well in a business environment because that's that's I I believe, uh, and I you actually I'll be curious about this question I was gonna ask earlier, but I wonder if you know some of the science. You know, like like the, to read a journal, like you probably like reading them, but uh, like I, I am not like, or or you're 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 more wired to do it. But I mean, I just get through the abstract, and I'm like, oh, Frank, like talk about being exhausted, like my battery's down. I'm like, can someone just give this to me in a way that I can un- make sense of it? And I wonder if that's how some of these assessments and these things, because they're they're easy to understand, the transfer of knowledge is quite easy, and that I don't think science in many cases has done a good job of making stuff accessible. Does that make sense to you? Like, is that is that part of the problem? Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, scientists and academics have done a terrible job of like bringing that information and they have like made a real divide between them and like the real people, <laughs> like the real world. Right. Uh, and and it does a disservice. And then, you know, all of a sudden in the pandemic, when we want all the public to trust science, well, why should they? We haven't built up a lot of trust up till now. We've put all kinds of barriers to getting information. Even the fact that like most journals are you can't access unless you have a subscription. Right. Uh, And, you know, as researchers, we can pay to make those open access, but we have to pay money to make it open access for everybody else. And so there is a clear inequity there about who can afford to pay to make their publications free and who can't. Right. Uh, And so that is a real like obstacle for people um, in being able to translate that into workplaces. And I think that's definitely, you know, part of why that happens. And so that's certainly like what we spend a lot of our efforts doing is making it into something usable, making it into something you can do with your everyday life. Right. So we've been working on burnout, both in terms of how do you charge your battery? So learning how to charge your battery, learning where your drains are, where your charges are. Uh, we act in our culture like it's an unlimited source, like just try harder and you can do more, but you can't, it's a fixed amount. So if you spend it on this, it means you're not spending it on that, right? And so helping people manage their battery and be more aware of that. And then at the same time, we also have a program on uh, burnout recovery for leaders. Uh, and that was a study that we did with uh, physicians and other healthcare workers during the pandemic. So we got money to work on burnout and frontline workers during the pandemic. And I was like, I am not telling these people they just need to do more yoga. Like we're not telling them they just need to do more mindfulness because that's a lot of what burnout interventions are about right now is do more self-care. But burnout was actually always meant to be about a mismatch between the uh, the employee and the workplace. So burnout is not a medical condition that you can get diagnosed with. It's a workplace phenomenon, and it is a consequence of unmanaged stress. And so it is also a responsibility of the workplaces to do things. And a great analogy that I heard uh, by one of the lead researchers is about, you know, when you had canaries in the coal mine, and they would uh, warn the miners that the environment was getting toxic. But nobody ever said that the canaries just needed to do more self-care or like, why don't we make those canaries hardier, more resilient, right? But that's what we've done to burnout now is we've like put it all on the shoulders of the employee. There are well-established organizational factors that contribute to burnout. And so uh, our program, because we do leadership training as well, can address some of those system level problems. Going through leaders is your fastest way to kind of make changes in system level problems. There are other structural organizational you know, administrative things that also typically need to get fixed, uh, but those can take a lot longer to fix. You can teach leaders to do things that can both reduce their own burnout 
and reduce burnout in their employees much more effectively and have a quicker effect on system level change if you're changing leader behavior. And we get some practical (laughs) tricks. Yeah, for sure. But actually before that, like I was thinking about factors, like leading to burnout, like what are those? Unsustainable workloads, right? If they're just too much work, which is a major problem now, especially because so many people have like left the workforce and organizations just decide, well, just do more with less, right? Uh, But all they're doing is burning out their remaining employees faster, right? And healthcare is a huge problem, but it really happens all over the place. Everywhere we talk to, they do not have enough people to do the things that they want to do. So unsustainable workloads, uh, fairness, when there's a mismatch of values, um, there are some well-established factors that in influence, uh, like organizational factors that influence uh, employee well-being. And so we we want to, we always want to empower the individual to do things to be well. And so we have a program, you know, for employees and anyone really to learn how to manage their battery better. Uh, but we also have this leadership program because we don't want to continue this myth that it's all your fault. And uh, the other thing we, we really spend a lot of time and effort on is changing behavior. So we've spent a lot of time working on behavior change. So Uh, In our research and in our clinical work with people with chronic disease, we'd be working on helping them change their behaviors to have healthier lifestyles, to manage their chronic disease. But we always also trained the healthcare workers. So we did a lot of training with healthcare providers on what they could do to encourage self-management of chronic disease, because that is like the system that the, the patients are in that also influences their behavior. And so we've converted all of that science of behavior change into our training. So a lot of training, you know, like a one day event and you feel pretty enthusiastic about it, might feel inspired by the next day, you have no idea what you're supposed to do differently, right? So we've embedded the science of behavior change into all of our training to have a more lasting impact. So we talk about what are sort of like your key performance behaviors, what do you actually need to do differently and what's going to get in the way of that? And so again, we have some scientific principles that we know help people make change more effectively. Um, and so we embed that in our training. And so our latest version of that is that we're making an, we're making an app for that because there's, you know, there isn't an app for that yet. Um, and part of it is that we do the training in five minute intervals each day. Uh, so you can get the training in five minute bouts because we know everyone's so tired that they can't like concentrate for longer than that. Right. Back to the tips and tricks. <laughs> yeah, so I knew Emily wanted to go there. <laughs> yeah, like on that individual basis around like keeping your battery full. And because it's, you know, you hear so much of it. And like you said, you hear so much about self-care and meditate and well, just have a bath and like, but I mean... It's hard to do because there are a lot of stuff in our way, you know what I mean? So we talk to people about first, just like understand your charges and drains, like figure out in your day the things that like make you feel a bit like smiling, charge, right? Or make you feel a bit tired, drain. Um, paying attention to those things. There are some things that you might be able to change. You might be able to alter. You might be able to give to somebody that it's not a drain on their battery. There's all kinds of differences in what charges people, what drains people, right? So one of uh, my staff loves making spreadsheets. She's got all these like spreadsheets and she's a great details person, which is fantastic because if I had to do it, it would I could do it, but it would take an enormous amount of battery for me to do, right? Meanwhile, like for me doing talks like this is actually a battery charge, right? For other people, it'd be a huge drain. And so matching people up with like what their battery, you know, what takes the least amount of battery for them to do so that everyone's kind of managing their battery more effectively. 
so some things you can, you know, change or delegate or give to somebody else. Some things are just always going to be there. We all have some net losses in our life, right? Sometimes they're family members. Sometimes they're a coworker or somebody else that you don't have control over. Um, and so, but even being aware that like, okay, I'm going to need to charge my battery after I have a meeting with that person, for example, or after, you know, we do that project or I have to do the paperwork on this, I know I'm going to be drained. And so I need to think about my battery management after that. It's also a really lovely way to check in on how people are doing is like asking about your battery charge. It's really a mental health question, uh, but it's a much easier conversation to have. So again, the app at some point will have the ability for the leaders to poll all of their employees about their battery charge so that even if your employees are working remotely, you can have a sense of how they're doing, right? Uh, there's also co- going to be courses on psychological safety, because if you haven't taught leaders um, how to um, you know, create psychological safety in the workplace, then people will just lie to you. My battery's fine. My battery's fine. Right. So you need to make it okay to not be okay, which is actually like one of our definitions of psychological safety. Right. Um, and so, uh, it's also a lovely conversation to have with your family, right. About, uh, not, not so much having the same amount of kind of tasks that everybody does, but are we, is everyone's battery okay? Are we giving people time to recharge? Are we assigning tasks again in a way that make the best use of people's batteries, right? Um, to kind of make sure people are well and to recognize that everybody is struggling right now, right? That would be a much better, if we wanted to normalize it, it wouldn't be that like the environment is normal, it's that it's normal to feel crappy, that it's normal, like it's kind of hard living in an apocalypse, you know, like maybe we're not going to be super happy and maybe we're not going to be feel super healthy because it's kind of hard to live in an apocalypse. That would be a better way of normalizing it. It's like, yeah, we're all struggling. Yeah. I read something quoted by you of just being messy enough that you're approachable. (laughs) I was like, oh yes. (laughs) Yeah. And that's one of the skills we teach leaders, right? Because psychological safety for like the, my favorite definition of it It's okay to not be okay. It's okay to speak up and disagree and it's okay to make mistakes. And if you want to create that in your environment, modeling it is your best way and most powerful way of doing that, which means that we need leaders to acknowledge when they make mistakes, when they're not okay, right? And a lot of leaders are kind of like, have been taught like they need to be stoic. They can't let on that anything's wrong. But in this day and age, that actually just alienates people. Everyone then says, oh, it's just me. I'm the only one struggling. So I better not say anything. And then everyone's just suffering in silence. They're not suffering less. They're just suffering alone. And again, when we think about those studies of how humans are hardwired, they're going to perform way less and be struggling a lot more because they think they're the only ones that's struggling. And so we need leaders to model that behavior. Uh, But the expression we came up with is like, be just messy enough to be approachable. So no, you don't have to tell everybody all of your woes and all the problems, right? But you need to be a real human who, who doesn't have it all figured out, who is struggling sometimes, right? My team will definitely hear me say, I'm sorry, but I have no battery left. Like, you're going to have to ask me that tomorrow. Or like, we're going to have to add some batteries to the system to like solve this problem because I don't have enough battery to solve this problem, right? Uh, when I uh, do recharging activities, I let my team know that I'm going to the gym as a recharging activity. It's actually in my calendar. It's written as recharging activity, gym, right? One, because I don't have enough frontal lobe to like uh, decide when to go. I need to go at the exact same time every single day. And two, because it gives permission to everybody else. Like, no, I won't be at a meeting at that time. I'm going to be at the gym. Like, no, I can't have a meeting at that time. I'm eating my lunch and you should too, right? That's the most powerful way to do that. And so 
that's again where our behavior change model becomes really important because all kinds of internal things will show up and be like, I can't do that. I can't, I can't admit those things. That's not going to work. And we need to help people develop skills to be able to tolerate that distress of change, right? To tolerate being different. And there's a ton of skills, again, from like clinical psychology that we know work across a huge number of other domains, including things like procrastination and stress management and productivity and all the and burnout and all these things that we can teach people that will help them be able to make change more effectively. There's a term in my house with my kids and it's, I'm just chilling. I just need to chill. And that's, I guess now I'm thinking, yeah, that's they're bad. There's a lot of chilling that happens. Uh, <laughs> so, so sometimes it's like, yeah, but we got to get some stuff done here too, guys. Like, you know, like there's some, there's some chores to be done. Um, but both my older kids say that I'm just waiting for our youngest to start telling them I'm just chilling. The whole concept of psychological safety and the value seems to be kind of emerging and, and maybe better understood. And uh, I, the first time I read about it, uh, that I remember reading about it on in a, like in a team environment was uh, Google's work. I think it was the Aristotle project. Is that correct? Yep. And it was a fascinating to read that, you know, when you look at this tech company and you think, you know, well, what would make highly effective teams? And the, and I'm, I'm, I'm just going by memory here, but the number one factor, I believe, was psychological safety. They they learned through the research, like they, and they looked at all these different elements. And it wasn't about you know how highly skilled people were. It wasn't about all these things. And I was to me, it was such a gift to get from from this from Google, this highly successful company, to say, well, here's what we're learning through all the teams we have in all these different various departments that actually. If you, if the leader and, and the members can create a psychologically safe environment, which says like, I don't know. And that is the number one predictor of a highly successful team along with some other contributing factors, but what a gift to the business community. Yeah. And again, to me, that is like, hi people. This is how humans work. <laughs> like, yeah. It's obvious. Right. But for, right. for those of us in the business community, we're like, oh, and, and the work we do as coaches with teams that like it, it made sense, but now it gave us some evidence to say, well, this is why it's important to do this work as a team. Right. And I, I, so to me, that was part of the gift and it's hard to refute it because it's, it's, you know, well-documented. Absolutely. And it very much is, you quoted it exactly. It's like the best predictor of high functioning teams. And they basically did every permutation and combination of personality traits and this and that and skill level and blah, 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 blah. And that's what they came up with. So there are some other things that help teams perform well after you have psychological safety. But if you don't have psychological safety, none of those other things matter. And I think what's tricky for organizations now is like, okay, so how do I do that? Right. Which, you know, when we think back to physical safety, at some point, there was some learning there too about like wearing hard hats or wearing your steel toe boots, uh, those kinds of uh, things that we had to learn how to do. Um, it's a similar thing with psychological safety. We can find key performance behaviors, again, that people can do that like enhance, uh, you know, psychological safety. It's the leader, we know leaders have like a disproportionate influence on psychological safety, but we also want everybody on the team to also create psychological safety with each other. Um, and so again, those are things that we try to teach people along with how do you change your habits around that so that behaviorally you're showing up differently in that way. Um, because again, it's the kind of thing that will help people cope in uncertain worlds that we live in now. So lots for people to learn, you know, one of the things people might want to do as well is you didn't mention you're an author, but I want to share your book right here. And uh, Emily agrees with me. This is an awesome title. 
Healthy habits suck for those not watching the YouTube. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the tagline is how to get off the couch and live a healthy life, even if you don't want to. Because <laughs> think of how many, like, sounds like you exercise. I, Emily exercise. I know exercise is important. How many times I'm staring at my shoes. And I'm like, I don't really want to do this today. You know what I mean? Like, I, it's not like I never, I've never wake up and say, man, maybe it's just me, but I never, that's just never me. Now I've never got through a workout and gone, geez, what a waste of time that was. So I actually have to psychologically go, okay, what do you feel like after? Keep that in mind. If you don't, there's a whole bunch of other things you get, you know, this will help you give you the capacity. Now I'm going to, now I can use language like charge your battery, you know, like your frontal lobe, which will make you, you know, like be way better to your kids. And all these great exactly. So, I mean, if I ask myself, like, do you want to go to the gym? The answer is no, I don't. It's really hard work and it's sweaty and like, you know, effortful. So instead I need to ask myself, do you want to go to the gym or do you want to yell at your kid at bedtime? Right. Cause it's going to be a recharging activity. It's going to help me show up as the person I want to be not like, not just long-term, like I'm going to avoid some bad health outcome, but like today, do you know what I mean? Like in the next hour, it's going to help me show up. And that's how you want to think about recharging activities. A lot of people get caught up in the, like being selfish about doing recharging activities. But really the question we ask people is who's going to benefit if you have a charged frontal lobe? So yeah, you'll benefit, but chances are a whole bunch of other people in your world are going to benefit. Probably all the people you care about and perhaps all the people you interact with are going to benefit if you have a charged frontal lobe. So you don't have to get, you know, you don't have to convince yourself it's not selfish. You can just say that it is also going to help all these other things that matter to you. And so it is serving all these other things that are important to you. And that's, again, how we embed some of the behavior change principles by attaching it to like a deeper meaning. Uh, so that it's helping you show up as the person that you want to be. And that's why we do these difficult things. So I think a lot of people who don't do those, you know, exercising, healthy habits, things like that, think that it's supposed to feel good and that they should enjoy it the whole time. And so if they don't enjoy it, then they're like, oh, I'm doing it wrong. Or they just kind of quit, right? So uh, I was on a panel once and I, I said about like, you know, people don't enjoy exercise. And a physician came up to me afterwards. He said, well, I think some people do enjoy exercise. And I'm like, yeah, but they're not the people you're trying to convince to exercise. They're all, those people are already out exercising. We're talking to the people who aren't exercising, who think it's supposed to feel good all the time when actually it sucks. Like I've often have thoughts about this is miserable while I'm at the gym, right? But I know it's going to charge my battery. I know it's going to help me do the things that matter to me in that day. And so it was about helping those people uh, be okay with feeling yucky in the service of like what matters to you. And that's how we frame up healthy habits. And again, that book is meant, you know, for people who will never get to like talk to a health psychologist, all the tips and tricks that we use for people trying to change habits. And again, trying to make that sustainable, right? Uh, Most people can do most things for a short period of time, but for your health, you have to do it for a long period of time. And so don't think about health as what you're trying to achieve. Uh, Again, if health is important to you, awesome, keep going. You're probably out doing lots of healthy things, right? But if health isn't something that motivates you right now, don't try to make that something that motivates you. Try to find something else in your life that already motivates you and recognize how health is going to help you do that thing or be that person or contribute to that project or whatever it is that matters to you, right? Uh, And then make sure you have enough frontal lobe battery to make the change. It's gonna require your frontal lobe battery to do all of these behaviors. They're not natural cave people behaviors, right? Natural cave people behaviors is like 
rest when you have a chance to rest, take the path of least resistance, eat as much food as you humanly can anytime you have food available to you. Those are all normal functioning things for a cave person living in that kind of scarce environment. So you can't rely on your survival brain to do these things. You're going to need your frontal lobe battery to do. And we definitely live in a world that is not conducive to healthy choices, right? It's not even neutral. It actually encourages unhealthy choices all the time. And so there's a lot of like frontal lobe battery that you need to use to try to change these habits and then to keep changing them over time. Uh, Often people have heard of like 21 days to change a habit. There is zero science behind that. Nothing, no science anywhere (laughs) to say only 21 days. And and it's more likely 60, 90, 365 days. Like it really actually depends on how frequently you do the behavior, not the number of days and how complicated the behavior is. Eating a healthy diet, for example, and not going on a diet, but making good food choices is a very complex set of behaviors. It requires a huge number of things to be able to eat whole foods or healthy foods, right? And so it's not just one behavior you're trying to change. And so even though it kind of sounds like a bummer, like, you know, it's going to take way longer than 21 days to change your habits. But I think people get to day 22 and they think it's supposed to be easy and it's not. You're going to have to dedicate some battery towards that for a really long time. And so where are you going to get that battery from? right? What are you going to, it's a fixed amount. So if you want to change your behavior here, where are you taking it from? Where are you getting that battery from? And again, in some of our programs, we talk about figuring out where you're spending your battery so you can make those choices about, is it the best use of my time to clean the toilets? Maybe I can hire someone to do that so that I can go to the gym. That would be an excellent use of money if you have it. And again, not everybody does, but if you have those kinds of resources to free up your time to do the things that only you can do, there are a lot of things that anybody could do. And so is that the best use of your battery? I got to get let my friends listen to this. They give me a hard time about outsourcing all these things that I just don't like doing. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I cut lawns for many summers. I don't have a lawnmower, never have, uh, or we don't, I guess, because it's just not my fun activity. Like, I don't want to do that. And so I, I totally can subscribe. And I, and I can expand that, obviously. So people are going to go, okay, well, so where's this program? Where do I find about this app? How do I buy this book? All yeah, those things. Sure. So how, how, how does that happen? Because we, we'd like our, our listeners to hear about that. And we'll, have, we'll provide that in the show notes. And then Emily and I are going to do a couple takeaways. And um, usually are there 45 minutes. Um, we're coming up to like the very top of the hour. Um, I honestly feel like we could talk for two more hours at a minimum and still feel like we're, we haven't uncovered this. But let's start by learning uh, where, where people can can find you and this information. So uh, the book is available online, like Amazon or any of those kind of publishers. I'm a, pretty much the only, if you type in Lee hyphen Begley with two Gs, you're not going to find many other authors besides me. So our website is dlba.ca. And the app, you can find out more about it. It's going to be launching soon. So you can get early information about it if you go to impactme.app. And so I-M-P-A-C-T-M-E dot A-P-P. Awesome. That's an easy one. That's smart. And then feel free to follow me on social media. We talk about these kinds of things all the time. And so we try to give out some helpful tips and help people, again, uh, live their lives more meaningfully, have more vibrant lives and reduce human suffering. Awesome. Well, this has been great. Thanks, Dana. So let's get your takeaway, Emily. Well, I think, and I, you're probably going to say, you took mine. My takeaway is definitely the <laughs> the analogy of the, the battery. Oh. <laughs> I'll give it to you. You can still repeat it. Well, in a way that I have always kind of looked at it before is like, all right, you've got a hundred dollars to spend today. Where are you going to spend it? <laughs> and when it's gone, it's gone. 
gosh, so many things I think around the, um, this thing of like community and feeling just that like we are wired for human connection and to find that. And if you don't have that from family of like, where else can you find that, that the community doesn't only have to come from family and just the, the self-awareness. And I think that this like constantly stopping to ask ourselves or for me to ask myself throughout the day, like, okay, Emily, how are you actually doing? And not just answering with, with like, okay, I'm good. And that like, you know, I think you heard me speaking about like the flood in my basement this morning. Sometimes there's a crack in the foundation. <laughs> and it doesn't mean that everything's okay right now because it's not, but <laughs> there's ways that's of coping with it. Suck up a lot of battery for you, right? So. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. This was a really, really, really enjoyable conversation. One that I am certainly going to listen to a few times over uh, when the episode gets released. Cause I know that like, yeah, there'd be so many things that just keep absorbing into my brain about this. Dave, what's your takeaway other than you just got to chill more. Yeah. Just chill. <laughs> I should just chill more. No, I like, maybe that's just a reminder. Cause I, cause you, you took mine of connection. And I love that, that research around, you know, estimating how high the hill is and how heavy the bag is based on having loved ones around that sort of thing. And one of the good things for me in the pandemic was that I got to really connect with my family, like me, the immediate family. But I, then I was mentioning going to a funeral and seeing all these relatives I hadn't seen and just reconnecting was just like, it just filled me up. And it was, I just didn't realize how much I missed them. So there has been a little bit of more isolation, but just a reminder of that connection, the importance of that and charging a battery. So, well, we're at the end of our time. Thank you so much, Dana. I hope people buy your book. Uh, it's really enjoyable. I've just got about a quarter left, so I can't say I've read the whole thing, but I've enjoyed reading it and uh, applying some of the stuff and knowing that it's evidence-based. So that's really important. So we're going to say goodbye for now. And Emily's going to take us out here. Yeah. Thank you, Dana. And thank you listeners for listening in. We will list all of Dana's information and any extras we discussed in the show notes. And the best place to find that is on our website at boilingpointpodcast.com. We are active on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, where you can also find Dana. And we put the video versions on YouTube and Facebook. And of course, the podcast is available on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Dave, I'll see you next time. Dr. Dana, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening. Follow or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app or visit boilingpointpodcast.com for more. You looking to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness? Then check out the Natural Man Podcast. Join me, host Mike C., as we explore all areas of human wellness, physical, mental, and emotional. Learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health. Remember, your doctor works for you. Learn biohacks, neurohacks, ways to improve sleep, and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain app, and at naturalmanpodcast.com.